Hi, this is Mark Dawson from The Grassroots, and you are listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guests today are Gary Talley and Rick Levy of the Box Tops, the band that hit the top of the pops in the 1960s with two smash hits, The Letter, a 1967 number one record that sold over 4 million copies and received two Grammy nominations, and they followed it up with Cry Like a Baby in 1968, which reached number two and sold over a million copies. Gary Talley was an original member of the band and the lead guitarist. Rick Levy joined the band in 2015 on rhythm guitar and vocals. And we'll talk about all of this. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, we are going to do what I call a song fest. So we're going to play a handful of their greatest records. You'll hear a bit of them. We'll talk about them. You'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that I feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make it relevant somehow to my guests. And in this instance, I have chosen the song right now that I wrote a few years ago. Why did I choose it? It's a 60s style rocker, just like the Box Tops hits. So I thought that it worked. So Gary Talley and Rick Levy, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Good to be here. Thanks a lot. Nice to be here. Yeah. Gary just got married, by the way, Robert. All right. So listen, I've told this story before in the podcast. I came of age musically during that whole British invasion era of the 60s. That's the era when you guys hit the top. I mean, looking back on it, and I want to address this mainly to Gary to begin with. Did you ever think when you guys were just formed there and you had that big hit in 1967 that you were still going to be singing that hit 60 years later? No, that never occurred to me. And and actually, it never even occurred to me that it would be a hit record. It was all just a giant surprise. To me, it was a surprise when it was a hit. It was a big surprise when it got to number one and it was a bigger surprise when we got nominated for Grammys, it was just all um, kind of amazing. It was sort of like a too good to be true, kind of a dream, dream come true thing. All right. But go back. Why did you think it wasn't going to be a hit? I mean, it had hit written all over it. Well, yeah, I guess, but I don't know if I recognized what was going to be a hit back then, you know? I mean, I thought it was a good song, but gosh, I mean, there were so many. We were competing with the Beatles and the Rascals and the Stones and the Love and Spoonful and, uh, you know, all the stuff coming out of Memphis like Otis Redding and, you know, Aretha Franklin. Gosh, you know, I just never thought of it being up there with those people. I thought it was like that was another world. How long did you think that the band was going to last back then? 
Well, I quit. I was going to school at Memphis State University, and I was a junior. So I thought, okay, this band will last a year or two, and then I'll go back to school. You know, so I didn't, I didn't think it was going to last that long. I totally understand. You know, I asked the same question to a lot of guys from the 60s. John Lodge from the Moody Blues told me this story about how when he was 19 years of age, he told his friends that he was going to be a musician. And they all said to him, that's great. What are you going to do when you're 21? Because <laughs> <laughs> nobody knew, right? Yeah, I had no idea. All right. Talk to me about the lead singer back then, Alex Chilton. I mean, he had that great voice. I'm sure yeah. he was probably pretty young at that time, but he had a voice that sounded older. Tell us a little bit about him. And I know that, Rick, you knew him as well, and he's passed on. So let, let's just talk a little bit about him. Well, the first time I met him was when he was 16 years old. And when I joined the band, it was called the DeVilles. This was before it was called the Box Tops. So I was the oldest guy in the band. I was 19. He was the youngest guy in the band at 16. The rehearsal was at his house, his parents' house. And uh, I thought he was totally unique because he wasn't like any of the other kids I knew. He was smoking cigarettes in his house, in his parents' house, when he was 16 years old. I mean, I was like, what's going on here? Nobody else's parents would let him smoke in the house. So even, even the fact that he was smoking at 16, you know, publicly, openly, was really unusual. But that he was smoking in his parents' house, I was like, wait a minute, this is a totally different kind of guy, you know, a totally different kind of family than I ever saw. Well, maybe that also gave that kind of roughness to his voice, because you're going to think I'm crazy, but he reminded me a lot back in the day of Steve Winwood when he was in that same 16, 17 years of age kind of category. They both had voices that were just much older than their chronological age. Don't you agree? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, he had a great voice, and he he actually could sing... He had two voices. He had his big, rough voice, but he also had kind of a sweet voice that he used in Big Star. You know, he could make it sound rough, but he could also make it sound not rough. And Big Star was the band that he went to afterwards. Am I correct? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Now, Rick, you basically have taken over the lead singer chores in the band. Am I correct? So you're, you're the new Alex Chilton? No, we all sing. No, no, Gary. Gary sings most of the uh, most of the Chilton songs. And funnily enough, I actually got involved with the guys in 1996, way before 2015, as their manager only, and booking them and managing them. Because I met Gary in Nashville. I was doing a TV show with Jay and the Techniques, believe it or not. And uh, Gary and I hit it off, and I went down to Memphis to meet the guys, and I said. Let me, you know, I was booking a lot of acts at that time besides playing. I said, let me see what I can do. And that turned into 14 years until Alex passed away that I was handling the booking and that. But yeah, I mean, um, Alex was unique. He was, um, he could be gruff. He could be a little bit uh, petulant sometimes, but 
he and I hit it off great. And I don't know why, but we just, we just always hit it off great. And, you know, I've, I've been very, very happy working with these guys, you know, in different capacities. So did you get invited to join the band before, you know, 2015 or how did you come about getting into the band? Well, we had this long association, you know, on a business level when I was managing them and booking them, I was Peter Noon's band leader for Herman's Hermits. And also, and after that, I was with Tommy Rowe. Both of whom I've had on this podcast, I might add. Oh, Tommy's, yeah, they're great, great, great guys. And then I think what happened was I was getting calls um, after Alex died and the guy stopped playing. I was still getting calls for the box stops. And then coincidentally, if I'm catch me if I'm wrong, Gary, but didn't you and Bill do some kind of recording project around 2014 or 15? Yeah, when 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 Alex died in 2010, uh, we just decided we were going to hang it up and not ever play again. Right. Anyway, so it went like that for five or six years, and then in 20 maybe 2015 or 16. We, Bill and I wound up doing a session for a guy here in Nashville. And then we began to think about the possibility of actually getting the band together again without Alex. And we just decided at that point just to give it a try. And we were both kind of apprehensive, you know, because Alex's voice was such a huge part of the, the sound. We thought, well, you know, nobody, maybe nobody will like us if, with it, if we don't have Alex. Anyway, we went out there and did a couple of gigs, and people responded, and they loved it. And we we realized they love these songs. And even though I'm singing it, or Bill is singing it, or Rick is singing it, if we do a good job on the song and try to make it sound as good as we can, they love it. Do you think that the audience is really aware of who the original members are or who the original lead singer is? Are they more interested in just hearing the song faithfully or do they care about the the inside stuff that I just mentioned? What do you think? I think the vast majority of the crowd doesn't know the names of anybody in the band. They just remember the song. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that because we've been out in the, you know, at the autograph table and countless times people come up to Gary and say, man, you sound as good as good as you did on the records. You know, so uh, um, not that we're trying to fool them or anything because we're not, you know, we're not doing an Alex sound alike thing, but we present the songs meticulously i mean we really deconstructed and reconstructed for performance and we use a live horn section we don't use synthesized horns you know it's extra money out of our pockets but it really makes the difference you know when you're projecting the song and other other acts we play with are always kind of like knocked out by it i think we're doing a good job for you well that you know faithful reproductions of the music i think as you said that's what people are looking for they don't really know the inside stuff i'm not surprised to hear that they have no idea of the original guys in the band some do some do but uh, you know as time goes on the longer we're playing with this unit the less that's a factor right okay so let me ask you this 
you know, one of the big trends in music playing out these days is tribute bands. Okay, you just see them everywhere. It seems like everybody's got a tribute band. I'm just curious, the 60s bands like the Box Tops, are there tribute bands out there doing your stuff as well? Well, there were a couple of fake Box Tops groups that actually claimed to be the original band. <laughs> they weren't tribute groups. Yeah, they, they were claiming it. Yeah. They, were, they uh, were stealing they, it, huh? Yeah, and we had to sue them. I mean, we had to go to court and uh, we had to sue them. We had to get get a guy and issue them a summons and all that. And we finally got them off the road. But we had a fake box stop group that played from the 80s all the way up till 96. Unbelievable. Did they have any basis to claim that they were the box tops or they just decided we're going to do it and let until somebody stops us? No claim. No claim. No claim. They lied. I mean, they actually said they were the original band. And, uh, you know, they had a lead singer that, you know, he just lied to everybody. And, uh, you know, some people knew better and some people didn't. Yeah, we were, we're lucky that Bill Cunningham, who was the other founding member, he had a career in the government with the Federal Trade Commission. He is very, very astute on trademark law and all that kind of stuff. So once it became apparent what had to be done, uh, Bill and Gary, along with the, the attorney, could get this stuff moving. But there, you know, there could be a tribute band somewhere. Who knows? I mean, you know. It's just amazing that, that, you know, every time you look out into the world, there's always somebody trying to pull some scam somehow, somewhere. And uh, it even got to you guys. Unbelievable. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. You know, one of the many benefits to me of doing this podcast is being able to collaborate musically with some of my guests who are among the best musicians in the world. My first collaboration was with the great Jim Peterick of the Ides of March and formerly with Survivor. Jim and I collaborated on The Fall of Winter, a song about a blue-collar worker who dreams of a better life. Also contributing was Elliot Randall, the renowned guitarist. John Helliwell was the amazing saxophonist in Supertramp, one of the greatest bands of the rock era. John collaborated with me on my 2023 album, Bobby M and the Paisley Parade, and he's featured on several tracks. One of them is This Time. Tony Carey is a singer-songwriter and keyboard genius who played with Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Tony has collaborated with me on several recordings, including his exquisite organ playing on All of the Time. And I'm finishing up a new collaboration right now with trumpeter Randy Brecker, formerly with Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Collaborations like these make the podcast very special indeed. As always, thank you for listening, and keep on rocking.
All right, let's go to the, the song fest portion because I want people to hear the music again. So right now, underneath me, I am playing, of course, your biggest hit, which is The Letter. Tell me your recollections about that. What's your impressions all these years later of that song? Well, my impression is Alex's voice was so unique. To me, that song, Alex's voice, and of course it was written by Wayne Carson, and Dan Penn's production are the keys to that record. Mainly Alex's voice was incredible. And of course it was a great song. And Dan Penn was a genius producer. And uh, I just think it was so different at the time. People just loved it. I mean, people are still crazy about that song. And it was very, it was very big. It's one of those top two or three songs during the Vietnam War for veterans. Yeah. Riders in the storm. And, you know, cause it was my baby wrote me a letter, you know, coming home, the whole thing. So, and we played for veterans events and it's like, they come up crying and stuff. And it's, it's like, Whoa, we're just playing some music here. But, you know, sometimes you don't realize the effect it has. I mean, I played the letter in my first little garage band in Pennsylvania, you know, and then all these years later, I'm playing it with, the guys who made it. So for me, it's still a thrill. Well, I'm glad you said that because I had a high school band called the Buccaneers and we played the letter as well. Everybody did. Sure. Yeah. 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 And another thing, it was such a short song that the DJs could sneak it in at the end of the hour and they couldn't get another song in. So it got played a lot. You know, one of the things I read to that point is that it was less than two minutes okay it was yeah. under two minutes and that was the great you know mark at that time of a, of a hit they you know two minutes is what they were looking for on the radio so you guys came in at the right time yeah uh, it's one of the there maybe in the history of radio hits i guess it's probably one of the three shortest singles ever really that was a hit Okay, well, now you're going to make me ask, what are the others? Well, Stay by Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs was one of them. Right. And, uh, I, you know, I heard what another another one and I can't remember what it was, but it was, you know, a famous song. I recognized it. But both of them came in right like just a few seconds less than two minutes. So let me ask you this. Did you guys find that there was a bump for you when Joe Cocker went out and did the cover that he did of the letter? Yeah. 
Well, no. I mean, there were probably a bump in sales, you know, that that the writer may have uh, noticed. But in 1970, in February of 1970, Alex and I quit the band. We were the last two original members. And so in 1970, except for that month of January, there was no box tops. Our manager put out anybody he could find in Memphis as the box tops, but but none of the original guys were playing in 1970. So our our manager maybe made some extra money and the guys he did have out on the road, I don't know. But we weren't really playing in 1970. But I'll bet that you sold more records after that. I mean, it was a brilliant cover. Oh, yeah. It was part of that Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour that uh, Joe Cocker did with uh, Leon Russell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was up in school in Boston at the time, and I remember seeing one of their concerts there. They're just a fabulous band. And it was a fabulous cover of your hit. Yeah, it was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whoever arranged that song for him and, and his other hits was a genius. I'm not sure who the arranger was. I think it was Leon Russell that did that. That could be. That makes sense. And actually a good friend of mine, Don Nix, was on that tour with Don Nix and the Alabama State Troopers was the opening act <laughs> on a lot of that tour. Mad Dogs in English. I don't think they opened in Boston, but they might have opened down in the South. You know, I think they might have opened when they went to England. Uh-huh. All right. Let's go to the second song. This is your other big, big hit, Cry Like a Baby. Tell me about that one. That song was written by Dan Penn, who was our producer, and his buddy Spooner Oldham, the keyboard player from Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And they were trying to do a follow-up to the letter. We have this big hit, and it's like, how, how are you going to top that, you know? They couldn't come up with anything. They were racking their brains. And they were across the street from American Studios, and just it was probably three or four in the morning and they were just like, oh, God, how are we going to do this? We ca I can't think of anything. And, and I forgot who one of them said, oh, man, I, I I'm so frustrated. I could just cry like a baby. And the other one said, hey, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly how it happened. They just came up with that from their despondency at not being able to come up with something. He said that. Anyway, so they wrote the song. They finished the song in, uh, gosh, probably less than an hour. They had the song totally finished. And then later on, you know, they got everybody in the studio and recorded it. And my buddy Reggie Young, who was the staff guitar player at American Studios, had the electric sitar, brand new electric sitar. And he played it on there. 
And uh, it was one of the first records that had electric sitar, and it was a brand new thing. I mean, the Beatles and I think one other record at the time had electric sitar on it. Anyway, so it was a new sound. Yeah, totally. So Dan and Spooner wrote it, and of course, Alex did a great job singing it. And it went, you know, it hit the charts and went all the way, almost all the way up to number one, but it got to number two. You know, I, I was going to ask you about the sitar sound, because you're right. It was brand new back then. I remember the first time that I got hold of uh, the Beatles' Rubber Soul album, and I saw the listing on Norwegian Wood, and it said sitar, George uh -huh. Harrison. And I said, oh, my God, they've got a typo in there, because who knew what a sitar was <laughs> at that time? But you guys were front and center. I think George was actually playing a sitar sitar. Yeah, he had a real one. Yeah, he wasn't playing the electric, because the electric sitar is played like a guitar. So it's, di it's different. Yeah, and it wasn't even invented until 66, I think. Uh, so all the stuff before 66 was a real sitar, you know, yeah. the big one that you set on the fourth play, you know. But anyway, um, yeah, that that was a great song. And, and Dan's writing and producing, I mean, it was just genius. There are so many weird things about that song. Like it has a seven bar section, which you never hear in a song. It's going to be either four or eight bars, never seven bars. It's got a seven bar sitar solo in it, and it's got three bass solos in it. Well, two bass solos in it. So was the seven bar sitar portion, was that a mistake or was that something that was planned? No, that's the way Dan wrote it. So interesting. All right. You guys had one more kind of hit. It wasn't quite at the same level as his first two. I'm talking about Soul Deep. Tell me about that one. Well, Wayne Carson wrote it, the same guy that wrote the letter. And we recorded a lot of songs that he wrote. Neon Rainbow was another one that he wrote. Moving lights, flashing signs, blinking faster than the mind. Leading people with suggestions, leaving no unanswered questions. So he was a brilliant songwriter. And then at that point, Dan Penn was not producing us anymore. Chip Smoman, the studio owner, Chips and Tommy Cogbill, the bass player, they were producing at that point. So this was 1969. So Chips and Tommy producing. I remember playing that song. Everybody loved it. I played one of the guitar parts. And then Reggie Young played another guitar part. And then 
Johnny Christopher played the rhythm acoustic, which is a huge part of the sound of that song. So it was out in the summer of 69, and it didn't, we thought maybe we had another top 10 hit, but it didn't quite do as well as the first two did. You know, it, maybe in some of the charts, it might've just got to the top 10 and maybe others, it was, I don't know, 15 or 20 or something. Anyway, we were kind of disappointed because it didn't go all the way to the top, but it was it was a great song and people still yeah, like, people it. like it a lot in concert. Let's talk about the concert thing, because you guys are out there still doing concerts. You're still doing these uh, the flower power stuff and things like that. Tell us a little bit about what the box tops are like today. Well, the thing that I think is. I mean, nobody can sing like Alex, but as far as the overall sound of the band, it's better than it ever has been before. We have worked so hard to reproduce those records exactly like they were recorded. Everything on that we do is something that was on the record, like get the exact keyboard parts, the exact guitar parts, and the exact horn parts the only thing that we can't do exactly is like when they had the female background singers on Cry Like a Baby that are singing way, way up high in the stratosphere. We can't quite do that. I'm the de facto falsetto singer. Even though I have a low speaking yeah. voice, I do all the falsetto harmony parts. You're the female backing singers, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the girl. I'm <laughs> yeah. the black girl singers. <laughs> so, yeah, we really... We really work hard on the arrangements and the the back of vocals and everything. And we, we just try as hard as we can to make it sound as exactly like the record. Well, that's what the audience wants, and that's, that's apparently exactly what you're giving them. Yeah, we also have dedicated video for every song. We've actually developed a, a montage that would be different for the letter than Cry Like a Baby. The audience will see something different. So wherever there's a venue that has video, we use that. So it's a real, it's a pretty good multimedia experience. Fantastic. And everywhere we go, I have to carry a Fender guitar and an electric sit. Yeah, you got, and I got, and I have to carry a ukulele. That's how crazy <laughs> things are yeah. for Neon Rainbow. Yeah. So <laughs> we want to get all the exact sounds that were on the records. All right. Well, you must be doing a great job because you're still out there. People are loving it. And these songs will just go on forever. We have been speaking here with Gary Talley and Rick Levy of the Box Tops. Guys, I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. Our pleasure. Well, thanks, Robert. It's been a pleasure. All right. We're going to listen now to that song that started out the episode. It's my song called Right Now. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com. Well, I just didn't think that we share all these tears. Yes, I just didn't think that we have all these fears. But I turned it to go because it's taking us years right now. I wanted a life with you. I thought that you wanted to. I hope that you'll see it through.